So if you're visiting with us this morning, another word of welcome to you. We are so grateful that you are here, that you're worshiping at Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. And you, you should know this, you're entering into a, a season and a time in our community of faith where we are continuing a conversation that we've been having all summer. We have taken six of the greatest stories in the Bible, like uh, think greatest hits albums, right? And then uh, we're, we've taken six uh, stories that maybe you've never heard of in your life, and we have blended them together into a sermon series called A Summer Mixtape, The Great Stories of Faith. And today, today we're going we're gonna to read two passages. The first is going to give us a bit of context to the second passage, and I'm not going to talk about it immediately, but I'll come back to it. But the second passage that we're going to read together is, uh, is a story a great story of faith that we often just fly right by, that we don't pay much attention to, and, and I'm included in that. So listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day, first from the Gospel of Matthew and then the Gospel of Luke. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And now from the Gospel of Luke. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaim, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's chief steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here. You hover here in this very sanctuary, just as you hovered over the waters of creation. And so we ask this morning that you would reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words, that they might be your word to us here and now. We also pray, O oh God, that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts, that, that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O oh God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So several years ago, when I was an associate pastor at a previous church, I received an email one day, it was a very formal email, from a woman in the church who was interested in doing a mission project around Christmas time that would benefit our Haiti partners. I had, uh, had just gotten to the church and I didn't know everyone yet and it was a name that I wasn't familiar with so I looked her up in the database, the church database, and I couldn't find a photo 
So I went to old directories and uh, there wasn't a photo of this church member. So I responded as formally as I could back to this very formal email. I would be happy to meet with her. And we set up a time to meet and honestly, I didn't think any more of it. The day came that we were to meet and the receptionist, Miss Nancy, called from downstairs and she said, Matthew, your, your two o'clock appointment has arrived. And I said, great, Miss Nancy, I'll be right downstairs. And so I walked down and there were all these people gathered around the receptionist desk. There were some children who had, uh, were being picked up from our preschool program. There were some uh, older adults who had just gotten back from an outing. I think they had been at lunch. And then there were some, uh, you know, young people. And I looked at Miss Nancy, and I didn't know who my 2 o'clock appointment was with. And so Miss Nancy, through this piece of glass, sort of like the one that we used to have over in our reception area, she sort of looked at me and went... <laughs> and she pointed to this 11-year-old girl sitting in a chair by the front door. And I pointed at her and looked at Miss Nancy, and she said, yes. <laughs> And so I walked over to Shelby, and I said, Shelby, I'm so glad to meet you. And she says, it's good to meet you. And I did what I always do when anyone comes to visit me. I say, can I get you a cup of coffee? <laughs> and Shelby did what some of you just did. She rolled her eyes at me, and she said, no, I've come here for business. I want to talk to you about a plan that I have about Haiti for the next hour. Shelby sat down with me at this table and she outlined her plan. She's 11 years old. She had a plan for how we could care for our church partners in Haiti on the island of Laganov. And I got to tell you, Shelby left that meeting and she put her plan into action. And you know what happened? That plan ended up drawing 75 volunteers at Christmas time. Those 75 volunteers gathered and packaged thousands of items for our church partners in Haiti and they shipped them out at Christmas time. I gotta tell you, when I walked downstairs and I looked at Miss Nancy, I didn't anticipate that kind of outcome from Shelby. When I got her email, I'm not so sure I could have envisioned 75 people coming together packaging thousands of items for our church in Haiti. And if I'm being really honest, even after that first meeting, I, I'm not so sure Shelby would have been able to accomplish all that she did. I mean, she was 11 years old, for crying out loud. She had never organized a big group of people before in her life. She was 11, so she didn't have a college degree. She wasn't a big donor that could, you know, just go to her pocketbook and stroke a check. I mean, she was 11. How could I have seen the impact that Shelby could have made? In my defense, how could I have ever seen that? God saw her differently than I did. And God worked through her in ways that I could have never imagined. So the question is... Why can't we see what God sees? You know, I've been thinking about that question this week. Why can't we see what God sees? And as I've been reflecting on that question this week, I think it's because we often see what the world has taught us to see. We know that. We're taught to see the lines that tell us to measure our expectations based on people's perceived qualifications. 
So where'd you go to school? What firm did you say you were with again? Oh, y'all just got back from vacation? Where'd you go? Here's the real kicker. Where do your kids go to school? Nervous laugh there. <laughs> Where do you live? What part of town? These questions help us to determine in some way, in some way, who is worthy and who is not. And the answers to these questions influence us as to whether people are capable of rising to our standards or our expectations. But the funny thing is, throughout the Bible, the Bible is uh, full of stories about people that the world overlooks. People that the world deems not qualified, dare I say unusable. But the Bible is a, a book full of stories about how God not only calls those people, not only claims those people, but how God works through them. I mean, how many times have we read this particular passage that I just read, the second one from the Gospel of Luke this morning, and flown right by it, not even noticing the names that we were reading? How many times do we read about the 12 disciples and later, we can't even recount who all 12 are. Can you raise your hand and name them for me this morning? Nope, nervous laugh again. I admit, most of the time, I, I skip right over this passage. And I get right to the parable of the sower. Right? I want to know if my life is fertile ground, rocky soil. I want to know that. I don't notice these women. Did you know that uh, only 93 women speak? In the Bible, that's the entire Bible. 93 women speak. Of those, four, of those 93 women who speak, only 49 are named. Women only speak an estimated 1.1% of the words spoken in the Bible. There are some men that are looking at me sort of surprised right now, and some women going, I'm not surprised. We have to understand that women in the Bible weren't seen as having worth or influence. They weren't seen as having qualifications or power. And more often than not, when women are named in the Bible, they are known by their affliction, their circumstance, their family relationship, or their life stage in the Bible. So when three men, women show up at the end of our passage this morning, and not only are they named, but their affliction also goes along with their name, tornado sirens should go off. The gospel writer is trying to tell us to pay attention. There is something going on in this passage. These three women were women who were once afflicted, who didn't count, who were once on the furthest margins of society. And now they're being named in the Bible? And not only being named, they're called disciples, followers of Jesus, followers of the Son of God. These are women that the world would have certainly overlooked, but God saw them differently. For instance, the first one is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene suffered from seven demons, and apparently Jesus healed her of all seven demons, and someone was around, and they counted as each demon came out. 
the world doesn't tend to value those who have demons. Maybe that's why we all try to hide our own. But can you imagine just for a second Mary Magdalene's perspective on the world, on life? Can you imagine her view on commitment and love and friendship? Mary Magdalene is healed of her seven demons and her healing transforms her life and gives her an entire new perspective. She ends up giving her whole life to Jesus. She follows him. She is the very first person who arrives at the empty tomb on Easter morning. She becomes the first apostle. She preaches the first sermon ever recorded in history of the resurrection. The world could have never, ever seen that in her. But God saw her differently. Then there's uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's chief of staff. This is a woman of immense means, influence, and power. Her husband would have been compensated very well as Herod's chief of staff. He'd have been compensated really well because it was his job to manage everything. All the palaces, all the people, all the stuff. But, but Herod's chief of staff, his wife learned that not all the money in the world or access to the best doctors could cure her of her illness. Don't you know that this woman felt like she had it all? And yet she had nothing? Then she comes across this young Jesus, and he heals her. And she gives her life to follow him, she trades the palace, the servants, the clothes, the influence for Jesus and his disciples in the Motel 6 where they left the light on for him. <laughs> and not only does she give her life to Jesus, when the check comes at the dinner table when they're eating out, or when, when someone has to go in and turn their key into the Motel 6, she picks up the bill. Now, I want you to think about this just for one second with me this morning. Her husband is the chief of staff to Herod Antipas. This is why I read our passage from Matthew this morning. Herod Antipas was Herod the Great's son. So Father Herod is the one who, when Jesus was born, was so fearful of the king of the Jews that he ordered that all children should be killed. This is his son, Herod Antipas. His son's chief of staff's wife pays for Jesus' ministry with Herod the Great's own money. You think the world could have ever seen that? Not a chance. But God sees differently. Finally, there was Susanna. Honestly, we don't know much about Susanna. But we do know that she wouldn't have had access to education or land, and she was possessed by evil spirits, all of which totally unqualified her from being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But apparently, God sees differently than the world sees. 
He's named as a disciple right there in Scripture. These three women stand at the end of this sentence, at the end of our Scripture passage this morning, and I believe that they reveal that God claims and works through those that the world deems unqualified, not gifted, not worthy. According to the society in which they lived, everything disqualified them with ministry with Jesus. But according to God, they make Jesus' ministry possible. God sees beyond worldly values. God sees beyond worldly qualifications. Why can't we see what God sees? You know, in 1959, there was a young African-American boy, nine years old, in Lake City, South Carolina. Do you know how small Lake City, South Carolina is? I had to look up where Lake City, South Carolina was, and I'm from South Carolina. (laughs) In 1959, this young African-American boy from Lake City, South Carolina, would walk a mile one way to his public library so he could check out a book. But the problem was uh, the library wasn't so public for black folks. When the boy got to the counter, the librarian told him, now, son, you know that this library is not for coloreds. The boy politely looked at the librarian and said, ma'am, I just, I really just want to check out these books. But the librarian scolded him and told the young boy, if she didn't leave, he She was going to call the police, at which point the nine-year-old boy propped himself up on the counter and he said, I'll wait. (laughs) The police arrived, and right after the police arrived, his mom arrived. She found her son sitting on the counter at the library, having a conversation with the police officers and the librarian. The librarian was uh, stating her case to the police. You know that I can't check out books to a colored kid. And the boy responded, but you know I'll return the books on time. I'll return them without them being harmed. And the police just looked at the librarian and said, ma'am, it's just a book. It's just a book. You can't check out a book to the kid. Reluctantly, the librarian checked out the book. And the boy sort of proudly grabbed his book, hopped down, and his mom stopped him and said, and what do we say to the nice librarian? (laughs) The boy turned around and he said, thank you, ma'am. And they walked out. The next week, the boy uh, walked his mile to the library and returned his library book, and he checked out another You know, he did this every single week for years. He was a voracious reader and he loved learning. And this young man went on to do exceptionally well at school. He was really good at math and science. He was so good, in fact, during his junior year of high school, his chemistry professor told him about a summer institute for science and math, so that little boy, from tiny South Carolina went 300 miles away to participate in the program. 
he met a professor there who said, you know, uh, son, the highest level of academic achievement that you can reach is a PhD. And young man, I think that you're gifted enough for it. I think you should shoot for it. And the, and the boy said, that sounds like a good idea, sir. I'll get a PhD. And he did. He went on to get a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Physics. Dr. Ronald E. McNair went on to become the second African-American astronaut in the United States. His last space flight was on the NASA space shuttle, the Challenger. He's an American hero. But what the world saw once upon a time was a black kid who couldn't check out a book from the library. And God saw something so different. God saw an astronaut. What the world saw was a woman who had been possessed by seven demons. And what God Almighty saw was a disciple of Jesus Christ, an apostle, a preacher. What the world saw was the wife's, the wife of the chief of staff of Herod. And she couldn't get any better. That's what the world saw. And what God saw was a disciple of Christ. What a knucklehead young minister saw was an 11-year-old girl. What could she do? And what God saw was a force for good that could connect young and old and care for a church in Haiti. Why can't we see what God sees in other people? Which then begs the question, of course. Why can't we see what God sees in ourselves? You know, sometimes we write off parts of our lives, parts of our story, because we believe what the world has told us about our own story. But my dear friends, God sees you differently than you see yourself. I want you to know this morning that there is no part of your life even that thing that you are thinking right this second, yeah, but he's not talking about this. I'm talking about that. There is no part of your life that is overlooked or off limits from God, for you were made in the very image of God. And God not only sees you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, God sees you as something even more than that. God sees you as God's child, as a son or as a daughter. God claims you and works through your life, even the parts that you think disqualify you from God's love, from God's grace, from God's mercy. So uh, something remarkable happened back in 2011. In that tiny little town in South Carolina, Lake City, South Carolina, they held a press conference on the steps of that library. And that library is now named the Dr. Ronald E. McNair 
Life History Center. Because God sees differently than the world sees. You want to talk about good news? Friends, that's the best news we could ever hear. Thanks be to God. Amen.